Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. The idea that depression is a lack of serotonin in the synapses of the nerves has become embedded in our practice over the years and can be a persuasive explanation for patients considering antidepressant treatment to treat a deficiency of serotonin. But is this theory correct, or could it do our patients harm? And when it comes to stopping antidepressants, overlooked for many years, what's the best way to advise patients on this? Or are we the best people to do this at all? In today's episode, we'll speak to GP and NICE committee member, Tony Kendrick, about the serotonin theory, and researcher, Mark Harowitz, for an update on antidepressant withdrawal. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP and clinical editor at the BMJ, and I'm joined by our usual co-hosts, uh, Navjoy and Jenny. Hi, Navjoy, how are you? Hi, Tom. I'm Navjoy Larder. I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. And Jenny, hi. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. Well, welcome. So we're going to talk about depression today, which probably we should talk about more because it's literally every single day as a GP, you can be pretty much guaranteed to see somebody with depression. Um, and so it forms a big part of our work, doesn't it? Uh, uh, we've talked about explanations on the podcast before and how like, important they are. And I guess like, I want to start by maybe talking about the explanation of depression. And, you know, there's this, there's this serotonin explanation, there's others. Is this something you feel kind of good at, comfortable at? Jenny, you're kind of looking hmm, perplexed. <laughs> I would not say that I feel overly comfortable with it. I very much agree. This is something we see all the time. And I think, you know, especially during the pandemic, you would see kind of an anxious flavor of depression as well, just like so often anxiety feeding into depressed feelings. And I think there perhaps was a less need to try to explain kind of what depression is or um, even what anxiety kind of was on a biochemical level because it was so prevalent. I mean, everybody was feeling so bad. And I think that was actually the most useful way in is it's not surprising given, you know, the pandemic and all the other negative things that have happened in various places that you might be feeling this way. And that seemed um, to resonate with people. So we didn't really need an explanation because it was mostly pretty clear. And then you throw in a few other life events. and Yeah, I think most of the, most of the consultations, you know, often people would be tearful. And I think they already kind of knew what they were feeling and probably already had an idea of what they were hoping to get out of the consultation, whether it was uh, a referral to a therapist or uh, or starting an antidepressant. Um, and so a lot of the consultations focused on that kind of discussion around when is it appropriate to start medicine and what, what the medication does and what the side yeah. effects might be. So I'm not sure if it's my, like, it was my inexperience or something's changed, but I feel like I, I talk less about actually about what naming the diagnosis or trying to explain what, what's going on than I used to. But um, do you feel that way enough, Joy? To... Yeah, I was just thinking that as you were talking, that that's exactly my experience as well, that I feel that for depression, I don't explain what 
what the cause is, because I think we don't know what the cause is often. I think there, you know, it's multifactorial. There are so many things that can feed into that cause. And that might be something that, you know, I might, we might discuss with a patient. Um, But also I think in the course of putting this episode together, I think, you know, for a condition that we do see all the time in general practice and, you know, we treat often, there is a lot that's not very well understood, I think, about depression. Um, You know, we don't, really know how the medications work. We don't really know why it happens. Um, you know, we, we know what potentially some kind of triggers or precipitants can be for an episode, but, you know, the kind of, you know, it's so much more than a sort of serotonin deficiency that you can top up if you take these medications. And I think we've always known that. Um, but... Um, but have you ever... Have you, Do you think you've ever used that as a serotonin hypothesis explanation for somebody no, who's... I don't think I have. No. I think I think I, I know and I can remember drawing diagrams of like, if you were to take these medications <laughs> as in SSRIs, we think that it will bring your serotonin levels up, but we, you know, that's not predictable and um, we don't, you know, and hopefully that will help you, but... Yeah. So, so what was maybe, your maybe of? was it like a synapse? It was of a, it was a graph. <laughs> All right. Okay. And actually, what I was trying to convey in that graph, which will probably lead on to our next, um, the other interview that we have in this episode, was I was trying to convey that um, when you stop, <laughs> when you stop um, taking SSRIs, the levels don't come down immediately, but you have to have been taking them for a little, a, a while. And I think that I learned that from an, uh, my GP trainer at the time. And I was thinking about this um, as we we're putting this episode together. And I was just thinking like, I have no idea if that's right or wrong and possibly it is wrong because that's kind of, we're learning so much more about the kind of, you know, we're learning that there seems to be more looking at, you know, looking at these medications and questioning some of our previous assumptions. So, um, I, I just find that all really fascinating that for a condition which is so common and so part of our everyday management, there's really quite a lot. There's a lot, obviously, that we are familiar with in our management and kind of, you know, can manage well. But a lot of the kind of underlying mechanisms are a bit kind of um, less well understood. And that can be really frustrating for people, right? Because it's like part of the popularity perhaps of the serotonin hypothesis is it's so convenient like how how easy if it did work to be able to say oh well you know you have to have certain levels to maintain you know regular mood and when they go down we can replace them i understand the appeal of the model and in some ways the simplicity of being able to explain the um, mechanism and uh, use of a medication yeah yeah it's such a it's such a little great it feels like a great shortcut doesn't it yeah. okay it's the serotonin then people go hey, yeah okay I get it um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so our first interview is that is about that and so there's been some um, discussion there's been some some in the bmj and elsewhere about the serotonin theory and uh, so we spoke to um one expert about that um which we'll go on to well now i've mentioned it i feel like we have to go straight to that, <laughs> that interview Should we do that uh so i spoke to tony kendrick he's a, a now, now retired gp but um gp um trained gp and also a nice committee member for the recent uh, depression up 
update. Uh, and he wrote an editorial for the BMJ about the serotonin hypothesis. So we'll hear about that after this message from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. So I'm Tony Kendrick. I'm a GP by background, although I recently retired for the second time. Uh, I'm Professor of Primary Medical Care at the University of Southampton, and I do research on uh, depression, its uh, assessment and treatment. Mm. And recently, uh, an editorial for the BMJ, um, where you discuss the, the serotonin theory of depression and antidepressants. and uh, could you, yeah, maybe to start with an overview of that, you know, what, what, what led you to, to want to write about that? Well, I was asked to write about it. The okay. BMJ um, commissioned the editorial. Um, and I think it was a very important um, issue, which uh, really speaks to what do we say to patients about antidepressants when we're uh, discussing whether or not they should start them. Um, it was about Joanna Moncrief and colleagues uh, review in molecular psychiatry, where they did an umbrella review, that's to say a review of reviews, um, of evidence for the serotonin hypothesis, the idea that somehow a deficiency of serotonin, a lack of serotonin perhaps in the synapses between the nerves, um, causes depression, and that antidepressants, and most specifically the, the SSRIs, work by correcting that kind of deficiency um, or mm -hmm. chemical imbalance um, as a popular term of serotonin. Um, the review was pretty convincing that um, there's very little evidence for the serotonin hypothesis. And uh, therefore, this kind of casts doubt on the rationale for taking antidepressants. Um, where the review went too far, I think, was in suggesting, um, not in its conclusions, but in its press release and in um, appearances by Joanna and others afterwards, that uh, this meant that antidepressants don't work. Um, and so my first take on this was, 
along with a number of other psychiatrists and neuropsychopharmacologists, um, is that uh, the fact that this particular hypothesis doesn't um, explain how SSRIs work mm -hmm. doesn't mean they don't work. Um, we judge that on the basis of clinical trial evidence. And um, taken in the round, there is evidence that antidepressants work. Although um, they're not perfect, they don't work for everybody. Um, sometimes we have to try them and see if people respond. Mm. But there, there is a greater response than there is to placebo, even when you um, take into account the fact that uh, people do get unblinded in placebo-controlled trials because of the side effects. So when, when you compare antidepressants with placebos that have anticholinergic effects, you still see a, a benefit from antidepressants. Okay. So I think we can say that antidepressants work for many people um, mm -hmm. in the short term. The, the other issue, though, this is where I think um, Professor Moncrief and colleagues have a point, is that we should not be telling patients that they have a chemical imbalance. We should not be saying that they um, have a deficiency in any way of serotonin. Um, we had shown previously um, in a, 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 a meta-analysis, a meta-synthesis of qualitative research um, that uh, of studies showing what affects people taking antidepressants long-term, that a significant uh, factor in that is their belief about whether antidepressants are needed long-term. And that often hinges on what they've been told when they start taking them. And now I, as a GP, and many of my colleagues that I've spoken to, have been used in the past to say, um, take this antidepressant, it will build up your levels of serotonin over time, and you will hopefully feel better. It may not work, but um, it's one of the treatments that we have. So I'm guilty of saying, in a way, you have a deficiency of serotonin. The problem with that is that um, rather like a deficiency of thyroxine or a deficiency of insulin, it kind of suggests that you should take it for good, mm -hmm. that maybe this is something you need for life. And it adds to the problems that people have coming off antidepressants because we know there are withdrawal symptoms. We know there is a risk of relapse um, when people come off. But we do know that people can come off successfully and that's probably better for them to come off after a couple of years or longer, if need be, um, rather than um, uh, to take them for, for good. Because yeah. particularly after the age of 65, and as a 66-year-old, I start to take this more seriously, uh, you do get more and more side effects of antidepressants, mm. and some of them can be quite severe. So what do you say to, or what do you advise listeners to say to their patients then as an alternative if you were to come and talk to me in my surgery and tell me that you were feeling depressed, once we'd gone over the symptoms of that and what was going on in your life, in your relationships, in your work, in your family life, I might um, consider offering you an antidepressant, but it would necessarily be a discussion between us and you would need to think about whether you wanted to take one. And you might ask, well, why should a chemical help with depression if it's caused by problems in my life um, or problems in the way I'm feeling, in the way I'm thinking, uh, in other words, social problems or psychological issues. Um, well, we do know that there are biological issues in depression, specifically 
things changing in the brain. And although it's not a simple deficiency of serotonin that we can correct with an antidepressant, nevertheless, the chemical effects of antidepressants we know can help the brain adapt to the stress of environmental problems, um, the stress of what's going on in your social life, and indeed the way you think. And um, therefore, chemicals can actually um, be of some use in depression. But they have side effects, and it's uh, a discussion that we should have, um, giving you the full information. So I thought that was um, pretty clear that uh, don't don't tell people that they've got a serotonin deficiency, which um, which I, which is helpful, isn't it? It's rarely we can be so definitive about about something, particularly yeah. when it comes to mental health, and. Um, and that point at which the you're prescribing an antidepressant is, is really important six months, a year later down the line. Um, I always find that it, it, people also seem to appreciate you thinking ahead to their recovery as well, like actually when you're better, which can be quite um, a nice, an important part of that conversation as well when, when people are often feeling quite helpless and hopeless and not seeing that that would happen, that... Um, that this is something they can stop and 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 I suppose carry on with their lives. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think I think you're right. That is a a kind of encouraging um, thing to be thinking about when you're like you know probably really wanting help at, at a stage where you're kind of about to start um, a medication. I do, I do wonder. I, I don't know how many GPs would describe um, depression as a serotonin deficiency. My sense is most. Most people kind of get that that's not what's going on, but perhaps people like me are explaining the mechanisms that, of how SSRIs work in a way that suggests it is a serotonin deficiency. But I, I think my sense is that, yeah, it, it, GPs and probably patients would know that it's more complex than that because of all the other things that we do to treat depression as well, you know, talking therapies and that kind of thing, the, the kind of theory falls down when you think about other interventions which are also effective for um, treating depression. So, but I think it is a useful reminder of of not only how we explain things, but then also, as you were saying, how we can, um, what things might be important to cover when we're kind of counselling patients at the start, when we're initiating these medications. I, when I think of this, because I feel like I agree, I think we've also moved on from from that. But um, it seems we're almost seeing the same thing when it comes to CBT and um, talking therapy solutions, like maybe sort of over promising. Like it's okay because when you have CBT, you'll you'll feel better. And and well, I guess the new Nice guideline has been updated specifically to say actually it's not just a case of everyone gets cbt but then people should be offered uh, a range of talking therapies according to their preferences and what they've had experience before and i suppose what will suit them most and i'm yet to see that change really in terms of what talking therapies services are offering but i get the same kind of response often from patients these days when you talk about cbt they're like you know, I've tried that; it didn't work. Um, in the same way that, well, antidepressants didn't help, and and so I feel like sometimes we're, we're running out of options, and then 
the last thing you want to do is uh, leave a patient feeling sort of helpless or that you you've run out of ideas. Yeah, it's always worth exploring those kind of um, you know when a patient says that though, isn't it? Because you know, oh, the antidepressants didn't work. It might be one was tried, and you know, maybe not even a you know might have been a subtherapeutic dose or something, and so. Um, yeah, but I, I hear what you're saying. You know, I think the in terms of offering a range of talking therapies, I kind of offer a referral to IAPT and then kind of it's in their hands. So you're, you're right. Like I, I'm that change hasn't filtered through to me for sure yet. Mm. Just picking up on a slightly different point, I was going to say that what I have seen kind of increasingly um, in conversations with people who decide to start an antidepressant is that they kind of ask more or now ask, whereas they didn't before about going off it, right? Like it was, it's always been, you know, a common concern, understandably of, you know, does this mean I have to be on this medicine for the rest of my life? Um, But people specifically saying, you know, is it easy to go off these? How would I want to taper down? I think there's this, um, more common understanding of these medicines is something you do use kind of as a a temporary assist um, as opposed to, you know, necessarily being on it for years. Um, So frequently people saying, and when I want to go off this, how do I do it? And it's like, you haven't even tried it yet. (laughs) Um, Well, well, Jenny, it's so interesting that you bring that up because our next interview is kind of very much related to this point and I think um, is probably something that will affect the way that we talk about antidepressants when we are initiating them because we, well, I had a chat with Mark Horowitz, who is a psychiatrist, um, academic clinical fellow, um, who has done um, quite a lot of work on uh, tapering antidepressants and um suggests that actually the way that most the way that it's done mostly at the moment is too quick and um too much uh, for patients and withdrawal from antidepressants is a kind of underrecognized phenomenon so he has some tips on how how maybe we could approach it better My name is Mark Horowitz. I'm originally from Australia, where I um, have finished my medical degree, and I've worked uh, in London. I'm currently working as a clinical research fellow in psychiatry at Northeast London NHS Trust, and I'm an honorary clinical research fellow at University College London. And a lot of my work is around uh, rational psychopharmacology and safe, safely stopping psychiatric drugs. Okay. Yeah. Well, on that note, that's what we're hoping to talk to you um, today about, um, about antidepressant withdrawal syndrome and its management, which is a topic that um, has gotten a bit more attention recently, um, or at least that's how I came to notice it with um, a new draft nice quality standard about um, stopping antidepressants that was published. um, So I think it was in early January around that kind of time. Um, And my initial impression was like, well, I think as a GP, I'm already kind of tapering antidepressants when I stop them. But actually, from the work you've been involved with um, and the work that you've done, um, it would suggest that antidepressant withdrawal is more of an issue than perhaps we've realised and that current practice is perhaps falling short for many patients. So 
I wonder if that's where we could start really with the basics. Like what, what actually is, is the problem here? Sure. So I think you're exactly right. There has been more attention um, uh, to this issue of antidepressant withdrawal over the last few years. In part, it's come up because of patient groups complaining that their withdrawal has not been overseen well, that they've suffered withdrawal effects. It's been misdiagnosed as relapse, and they feel that doctors are tapering them too quickly off their medication, causing them trouble. Uh, this has led to a lot of patients seeking help from outside of the medical system. They've ended up going onto peer support websites or Facebook groups to get advice from other patients on how to come off their drugs and reported often that it's more successful than the advice they get from doctors. Right. Um, we, you know, which is quite uh, surprising. Uh, my take on this is uh, I myself learned how to come off my antidepressant from peer support websites, mm. despite the fact that I'd done a PhD at the Institute of Psychiatry in the way antidepressants work and work with the leaders in the field. So it was quite a, uh, an inversion of the usual uh, flow of information. For many years, the NICE guidelines has said that antidepressant discontinuation, a, a euphemism that actually came from drug companies, uh, is mild and self-limiting for about a week or two. Occasionally, it can be worse. And that's what's informed GPs and psychiatrists for many years. Um, it turns out from studies that have been done and from people's reports that antidepressant withdrawal is more common, more severe, and more long-lasting than, than we had first thought. So a systematic review done a few years ago found, if you just look at double-blind randomised controlled trials, about half of patients who stop antidepressants will experience withdrawal effects. There's less certain evidence on what proportion will experience severe effects. Uh, from surveys of patients, up to half of those that experience withdrawal effects, so about one in four, will experience severe withdrawal effects. Um, that might be a slightly skewed population of people with uh, worse than average withdrawal effects, but it's quite a large proportion of people. And there are uh, case series of people that have experienced months and sometimes more than a year or years of effects from withdrawal symptoms. So first of all, people find that quite surprising. How yeah. can withdrawal last for months or years when most of the drugs only take days or in some of the longer acting cases like fluoxetine weeks to come out of the, the blood, yeah. how can withdrawal symptoms last so long? And the, the explanation for that is it's not about the drug leaving the body. It's about the residue of the drug's effect on the brain. So the right. brain adapts to the presence of the drug, like to lots of different drugs or medications that we take. And it's those adaptations to the drug that can take months or years to resolve. And the time it takes for the brain to get used to there being less drug around is what leads to withdrawal symptoms. Withdrawal symptoms are really the difference between what the brain expects, what it's become accustomed to for a drug, and what, what is actually supplied by the, by the drug. Uh, we know from neuroimaging that actually antidepressants can leave uh, changes in the brain that last for months or sometimes years. Right. Right, that's fascinating. I just wanted to sort of ask you, um, when we refer to antidepressants, are, what, what, are we thinking specifically of SSRIs or is this kind of other classes as well? So all, all classes of antidepressants have been found to cause withdrawal effects, uh, the tricyclics, uh, 
as well as the newer drugs. But the drugs that I'm primarily focused on are the drugs that are commonly used in, in clinical practice, and they are the SSRIs, the SNRIs, and drugs like metazapine. Right. These, these antidepressants affect serotonin and noradrenaline and a variety of other neurotransmitters all throughout the body and brain. So they have myriad effects. They affect the hormonal system. They affect the hematological system. They don't just target the brain. And, the, and all of those systems will adapt to the presence. And when you take away the drug, there'll be withdrawal effects that affect all of those organ systems. So you get two major groups of withdrawal symptoms. You get physical symptoms, things like dizziness, uh, shakiness on your feet, headache, nausea. There are some quite typical sensory symptoms, the famous brain zaps. Then there are the emotional withdrawal effects. And some of the emotional withdrawal effects from antidepressants include low mood, uh, increased anxiety, trouble sleeping, panic attacks, uh, tearfulness, and sometimes people will have suicidal uh, impulses or thoughts. Um, and the first thing to say is you can see how this could lead to confusion because yeah. it overlaps a lot with the symptoms of depression and anxiety that are the yeah. reasons that people are often put on these medications. Yeah. So I guess the first step in kind of distinguishing um, withdrawal symptoms from relapse symptoms is just an awareness that you can have these emotional symptoms. But then in practice, what else might you be looking for? Is it like, as you were just describing in that example, new symptoms? Or uh, is there anything else that um, clinicians could could be attentive to or patients for, in that? That's right. This is the key issue. How can you distinguish? Because it can be confusing. There are, there are three main ways to help distinguish withdrawal from relapse. The first one is the timing. If someone has stopped their medication a day or two or a week or so ago, there's a high likelihood that it's withdrawal. Relapse shouldn't happen for weeks or months. It will depend if someone has a relapsing, remitting condition. It should depend on their normal rhythm, which might be months, it might be years. The second one is the nature of the symptoms and accompanying symptoms. So if depressed mood and anxiety makes it difficult to distinguish. So if, if someone says they're feeling terrible, the next questions to ask are, are you also dizzy? Uh, have you had a headache? Have you had nausea? Have you had any electric saps? Uh, there's quite a good list and the nice guidelines about what to ask people. Mm -hmm. And I would add to that the point I made before, it's good to distinguish what were the symptoms of the underlying condition to more clearly distinguish from what's going on now. And then the third one, which is more helpful in retrospect, is if you reinstate the drug, then the symptoms generally dissipate within a few days if it's withdrawal and if it, and if it, it generally takes a bit longer if it was a relapse. Um, the, that relationship becomes a little bit less clear the longer you wait before reinstating. So when you reinstate a few days or a couple of weeks afterwards, almost everybody responds quite quickly. As you get later out, it's not quite as clear the response to, to withdrawal symptoms. So say um, you uh, you know you're you're seeing your patient who is coming off their antidepressants and you you make the judgment that actually the symptoms they're experiencing are due to withdrawal. I can imagine that that can be 
difficult if you're not experienced in managing this in practice where you know, your uh, my my instinct would be to like, oh, I think I think this person needs to go back on their antidepressants. So, how how do you tend to sort of manage that in your clinic? How frequently do, are you seeing patients, for example, to follow up? Right. So, I mean, the, so the first thing to say is, so if someone's experiencing withdrawal effects, it's not a sign that they need the drug. Yeah. It's a sign that they're coming off too quickly. Right. Because if you're you know, you could you could come to a similar conclusion for other drugs. If someone experienced if someone is experiencing withdrawal from Valium, you wouldn't conclude they must need the Valium. Mm-hmm. The same for smoking. If someone had withdrawal symptoms from coming off cigarettes, you wouldn't conclude they must keep smoking. So I don't think withdrawal symptoms are a good reason to put someone back on the drug and keep them there. Relapse might be, but withdrawal symptoms are a different story. So the first, so I spend a lot of time talking to patients about what to expect when they come mm-hmm. off the medications and having and putting in place contingency plans. And the contingency plan is generally the same, which is if you have withdrawal symptoms, let's either pause to wait for them to go away because they're often temporary if they're mild, if they're um, quite unpleasant to go back a step or two to wait for them to resolve and then to go down more slowly. Mm-hmm. So we've learned a lot over the last few years about how to safely take people off antidepressants to to avoid withdrawal effects. It does a bit. There's two, I'd say there's two overarching ideas. One is to go at a rate that the person can tolerate, which is often much more gradual than people have been taught in the past. The guidelines now from NICE, which links to a very useful education pack from the Royal College of Psychiatrists, recommends that people should stop over weeks or months. And in fact, some of the guidance suggests that people should stop over more than a year, uh, oh, especially really? for high-risk antidepressants like paroxetine or then lefaxine, and particularly for people who've been on them long-term or have had trouble stopping in the past. Uh, antidepressants don't act on the brain in a linear way. That means that doubling dose doesn't double the effect. They actually have a pattern of effect on the brain that is a hyperbola, which basically means that very small doses have quite large effects on the brain and the effect flattens out at higher doses. So for example, taking a very common drug like citalopram, one milligram, a tiny dose, actually has almost half the effect of 20 milligrams. That means as you reduce the drug, so going through what the what, what a clinician would normally do based on historical practice, going from 20 milligrams to 15 milligrams only causes a very small decrease in effect on the brain. 15 to 10 a slightly larger effect, 10 to 5, larger again. The reduction from 5 milligrams of citalopram to 0 milligrams actually has about a 15-fold effect on the brain as compared to 20 to 15. And so it's, it makes intuitive sense to go down by these nice even numbers. But in terms of what the effect on the brain is, it gets steeper and steeper. It's like walking down a very shallow uh, path that suddenly turns into a cliff. Right. And I think a lot of people get into trouble in those last few milligrams. That's what people tell me. These first few reductions was relatively easy, but the last few milligrams put me in a screaming mess. And and, and because people have been unaware of this, they, they can't see uh, this very steep last step and they keep on falling over it in the dark is what, right. I, sorry, what I see. Yeah. Um, so what makes more sense, rather than reducing by even amounts of dose, say five milligrams each step for stelopram, it makes more sense to reduce by even amounts of effect on the brain, which means that as you're going down this path that's getting steeper and steeper, you've got to slow down. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you may need to go down to doses less than a milligram for a lot of antidepressants that are used oh, right. in England. So 
in order, so for example, a rational, a pharmacologically rational set of dose reductions for citalopram would be something approximate to 20, 10, 5, 2 and a half, 1.25, 0.6. Right. Those are 50% dose reductions yeah. at each step. Yeah. Getting smaller and smaller to follow that curve of effect on the brain. That is that is the example uh, regimen given by the Royal College of Psychiatrists um, advice on, on stopping citalopram. Um, and in practice, I've seen that work for a lot of patients who couldn't get off their medication doing the usual 10 five, zero reduction regime. Mm -hmm. Now, the question that everybody puts here is, how could you possibly do that um, in practice when antidepressants, uh, for example, citalopram, comes only as a 10 milligram tablet at the smallest that was you, you read my mind. That was going to be my next so, question. So so I, I often give lectures to GPs and they and they sort of understand what I'm saying and then they groan because <laughs> I'm, I'm giving them uh, a problem. And right. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to solve a, a much bigger problem by giving <laughs> yeah. a smaller problem. So I apologize. I'm very apologetic in all my <laughs> Um, It is not a good idea to dose every other day. The half-life of citalopram and most antidepressants, except Prozac, fluoxetine, is about 24 hours. If you dose every other day, that's two half-lives. The drug goes down by half and then to a quarter. It's quite a large change in plasma levels. And we know that can precipitate withdrawal effects in susceptible people. So the first thing you can do is you can split tablets. Round tablets can be halved and quartered. So you can actually get down to 2.5 milligrams using a tablet cutter that you can buy at local pharmacies or online. Mm -hmm. Doses beneath that, basically need you need to use a liquid preparation of a medication. So once you're using a liquid version of a drug, you can you can make small adjustments. So if someone is saying the rate that I outlined just before, which was 50% reductions made about every fortnight or month, if that is uh, causing them too severe withdrawal effects, you can halve the rate and go to 25% every fortnight or month. Or I should point out, there are some patients out there that are only able to tolerate reductions of around 10% of their most recent dose made every month or so. And that means because it's of the most recent dose, the reductions become smaller and smaller as you get down to lower doses. And that's how it takes some people a year or a couple of years to come off of antidepressants. Mm -hmm. And I've certainly come across patients that have told me they've taken three, four, or five years of slowly titrating down liquid drugs, uh, particularly of drugs like venlafaxine or paroxetine, in mm -hmm. order to come off those medications. Wow. That was so great. So much new and incredibly useful practical information there. Thank you, Navjoy, and thank you, Mark. That was uh, really helpful. Maybe one of our most useful interviews ever. Wow. I mean, I yeah, I think Mark, Mark Horowitz um, has done a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, teaching and lecturing and writing on this topic. And I think it all stemmed from his own experience as well of trying to come off... Um, his antidepressants. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because as I was talking to him, I was reflecting back on situations where I thought someone was having a relapse on the basis of the symptoms they're having, because our convention is that you can come off an antidepressant, you know, four weeks, 
uh, start tapering, half the dose, do do every other day. If you know if that's a bit fast, you know you know you might need to be an extra week or something. But so this was um, this was eye opening. I, th- I think in um, more recent years, obviously there has been more these connections between patients, um, you know, patient uh, peer support groups and that kind of thing that have really raised attention on this problem. And I think it's a good example of how listening to patients can be so important and trying to kind of connect those dots. Yeah, I totally agree. That was so clear, so practical. You can tell that he has been a GP educator. <laughs> Just really anticipating questions. And thank you, Navjoit, for asking about how to divide pills, even to cut doses. And the piece about not taking a pill every other day was something I did not know. I learned a lot from that. Yeah. I think it links a bit as well to what we were talking about before we went into that interview about conversations that you have when you're initiating um, antidepressants as well. One of the things um, I spoke to Mark about, but which we didn't have time um, to air in that interview, was about um, a, a question that I, I suspect we all get fairly commonly when you know we're discussing antidepressants with patients is, are they addictive? And I mean, the answer to that is no, not in the kind of pure psychiatric sense of the word addictive, but I've always felt very confident being like, no, no, you know, they're not addictive and, you know, you can stop when you need to. But actually, I think there is more of a conversation to be had about, you know, the fact that for some patients coming off can take months, if not longer. Um, and that is because the, the body does adapt to these medications. So yeah, um, that will probably change the way that I, I speak to patients about antidepressants when I'm starting them. Yeah, I very much agree. And even thinking about the kind of intro to this episode and the serotonin hypothesis, not that, you know, any of that proves the hypothesis or anything, but if we're again thinking about the biochemical basis of this, you know, when you are putting something in your body that changes the levels of those neurotransmitters, not that it's replacing or whatever, but when there is an adjustment in those levels, it it does make intuitive sense that it, you can't just immediately take them away because your body has acclimated and adjusted to that. And, you know, again, it's not a one-to-one replacement, um, but it, it does make sense that there's perhaps more of a conversation to be had about the fact that people may really struggle and, and it's not as fast as, you know, go down by half every two weeks and you'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. I think this idea that it's just a bit slower and a bit more drawn out than perhaps we're used to doing is, um, is yeah, just, I think something I will definitely talk to patients about. So I have a question or maybe something we could work through together. Um, so when that patient comes in, for the appointment which is I've been taking this for this long and I I want to discuss stopping this medication um I suppose still the best case scenario is that for many people they can stop these within that one month or two months obviously there's there's factors to discuss I didn't didn't quite catch in that interview whether that was still for most people, achievable? Yeah, I think, well, I think from the evidence that Mark cited, you know, from RCTs, he was saying about 50% of uh, patients get withdrawal symptoms when they stop. And obviously I didn't ask and I don't know, like, what the rate of taper was in, the, in those um, studies. But yeah, so I, I think it is a proportion of people. It's not everybody from from what he was saying. So it's still reasonable to, to um, discuss, you know, 
in the best case scenario, this is your original plan. And then if that isn't, if that isn't working for you, if you're getting withdrawal effects, then here's what, um, I suppose that's maybe more, more appointments. I'm always thinking like how many appointments is this going to take, <laughs> which is really bad. But like, if I can cover it now and send the patient armed with, you know, the, the information and understanding they need to do it themselves. And if, if they want to take that on, then yeah. I tend to think that's a better thing. But it's so funny you just said that because I was thinking the same thing in my head. I was like, okay, so, you know, I don't want to set somebody up for failure by saying, oh, but some people take a really long time. You might struggle to come off. Like, I don't want to, like, give them the Mm. expectation that this is a hard thing to do because that might not be their experience. Not because it couldn't happen, but because it might not, 50% of cases, right? So in my head, then it's like, well, what's the approach? Is it like, like... I, I worry that sometimes I veer too much towards giving too much information, like, oh, but this might thing this bad thing might happen, so make sure you, you know, reach out if it does, versus do you just set up a follow-up appointment for a month's time, or do you put like a reminder in your calendar, check in with this person, you know, and, and all of that yeah. takes resources. And in a system where you can get an appointment in the next two weeks, <laughs> I guess you don't feel so bad, but um, also that. Having an appointment, which actually turns out to be, yeah, it's going fine, thanks. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, the the Royal College of Psychiatrists guidance that Mark mentioned in that interview is actually directed at patients. It's about how to come off your um, antidepressant medication. So I think that could be a really useful resource that we can share with patients. And then, you know, depending on the patient, say, get in touch, you know, tell us how this is going and, and we can see you again. So that was my question in right back to, in the intro is you know, are we even the right people to to guide people obviously obviously we are we're GPs we're good at this but you know if some people have a better experience on a Facebook group within certain um caveats for for that is that is that a reasonable alternative for people It's a good question isn't it I guess people have turned to those resources because they're not getting what they need from their GP surgery or whoever their healthcare provider is so I don't know like self-help isn't it like we do we yeah I think but it's you know like the time required to get an appointment with a doctor if you realize you're struggling when you're trying to taper off these medicines. And even if you were to get an appointment for the next morning, you're still suffering, right? Mm. So like, Mm. I get it. Like, I get why you would go online or seek online support resources, try to figure out what's going on, even if that is to prepare you for your appointment or what have you. Yeah. So rightly or wrongly, I I think increasingly I'm trying to give people permission to you know, or at least to have a conversation about how how they might look to do things like this without me. Yeah. Should I stop doing that? <laughs> You're both looking like... Well, the thing is, is actually how much control do we have anyway? Like yeah. pa- patients could do that themselves if they wanted mm. to anyway. So mm. um, I, I don't think you're wrong, Tom. <laughs> I don't think you are either. I, I just... Um, I think, you know, when I was most recently in practice in New Zealand, I probably just, I'm really bad at keeping boundaries. So I'd be like, oh, just feel free to check in with me. (laughs) And I'd be like overworking by a lot, you know. (laughs) I don't think you're wrong. (laughs) 
<laughs> Do you give out your number? Oh, anyway, that's a, still a conversation. I, yeah. Another yeah. podcast yeah. episode. <laughs> I used to, actually, when I was in residency. Really? I don't anymore. There we go. Everyone go and see Jenny. <laughs> Jenny. <Yeah>. No, <laughs> I'm not advocating that approach. <laughs> so, Natalie, I wanted to ask you about these, go back to these diagrams. I, I, I feel like you might maybe need to. No, I've, I've, I stopped doing those a long time ago. But was it a high... Uh, hyper, you know, hyperbolic <laughs> graph. Was it? What was the shape of your curve? <laughs> it was an exponential curve. No, I no. Oh. It was. It was. It was just a a linear, yeah. a linear line. <laughs> a linear line. A that linear doesn't make line. any sense. Okay. But um, it was just. You a, went for the, the BMJ, do you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Research editor. Yeah. It was just a positive correlation. There we go. Um, but okay. uh, I've, I've stopped doing those graphs. And if I hadn't, I will definitely stop after this episode. Um, but yeah, I think I, I've definitely learned a lot, actually. And um, and like I said, sort of when we were first starting this conversation, once again, I'm just reminded at like how much there is to know um, and actually how much we can learn from our patients as well. I have a question for you both. What else do you tell people when they come in saying they want to get off an antidepressant because I got in the habit of kind of trying to have a little chat about what's going on in the rest of their life does do you think it matters like is there you know people say there's never a good time to do x y or z is it is it that way with going off an antidepressant I I, yeah I think I tried to do that and yeah just just like the story of how how they've what what was the helpful things in their recovery assuming that that's the context um i always had i always learned this thing that you know you do your cbt to sort of change that's the thing that will change your thinking patterns and behavioral patterns longer term and once those are established that's the best time to start thinking about stopping the medication um because you've still got those i guess those new sort of pathways if you want to keep a kind of neurological way of thinking about it um established yeah. I don't know if that's right or not. No, that makes sense. And I, I do something similar. I do explore kind of where patients are with them. And sometimes, you know, and it depends on the pa- what the kind of nature of what the patient is saying. If it's like, you know, I'm thinking about it. Do you think, do you think the time's right? Or for some people, it's like, I, I want to come off this. Like, um, mm. how, how should I do it safely? You know, th- those to me are two different conversations. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. I I just sometimes wonder, you know, if it's worthwhile, like planning it out a little bit. Um, And then, of course, there are all the circumstances, like if people are trying to conceive, et cetera, et cetera, which which is for another podcast as well. Yeah. So I think that's a good good place to end. I've learned a lot from today's episode. Uh, Thank you to our guests, uh, Tony and Mark. And thank you, Navjot, for that great interview. And thank you, Jenny, for your insights as well. We'll be back with, with more hyperbole uh, in the next episode in a couple of weeks. But take care, Jenny. Thanks, Tom. Bye for now. Bye, Navjot. Bye for now. So if you found this useful, um, please tell your colleagues, share a link, rate us on your podcast app. Uh, we've not had any ratings for a while, so that would be helpful. <laughs> uh, and we'll see you for another episode in a couple of weeks. Goodbye.